Today, we are doing God is wise. Our attribute today is wisdom, the wisdom of God. We did two weeks on the knowledge of God, and we briefly talked about when we were doing the knowledge of God that obviously wisdom and knowledge are related in a very important sense, but they actually are different. There's a difference between being knowledgeable and being wise. Uh, If the Bible ever talks about God being full of knowledge and wisdom, usually it's trying to say two separate things about who God is. And so classically, historians have always understood that there's a difference between God's wisdom and his knowledge. One thing that I found really interesting is one of the, probably the main resource that I use for this class, which is kind of considered the great resource on the attributes of God, is a theologian who you've seen me quote him all the time named Stephen Charnock. And he has a two-volume uh, series called The Existence and Attributes of God. And it's kind of considered, at least in the Reformed community, it's kind of considered the, the standard go-to for uh, the attributes of God. It's very thorough. It's very good. And what's interesting is I, have, I didn't do an exact page count, so I don't know if this is exactly true, but just based on reading and eyeballing, um, his section on the wisdom of God is his longest section. And so it's, it was just kind of interesting that he enjoyed it so much and thought so much of it that it took up what seems to me more pages than almost anything else in at least the first volume. So uh, for me, it's almost the exact opposite. I think I have less information in this PowerPoint than I have in all of our other ones. So I, I guess he sees a lot more than I comprehend yet. But the wisdom of God is a, is a popular uh, topic. And so let's first begin by how would you define wisdom when you hear that word? What comes to your mind when you think of wisdom? The proper use of knowledge. The proper use of knowledge, I think that's really good. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah, that's, that, that's kind of how I've always understood wisdom. I think that wisdom, like so many of the other attributes, is one of those words that you kind of just know it, but it's, it's hard to articulate a definition to it. Uh, and I think so. Th- I'm sure that this, I'm sure the definition, the proper use of knowledge. I'm sure maybe it breaks down at some point, or there's some places where the the line between knowledge and wisdom is fuzzy. But I think that's generally speaking a pretty good definition. Um, that's that's how I've always heard it too. Uh, wisdom is not knowledge; it's what you do with knowledge, kind of a thing. I, there's a there's an old funny joke that I don't remember who first said it, but I I, I remember hearing it a lot where it said, "Knowledge is knowing that tomatoes are fruits." Wisdom is knowing not to put tomatoes in your fruit smoothie. Knowledge versus wisdom. Uh, So I think that's probably pretty good. The reason, one of the best ways that I know that wisdom is really hard to define is in almost none of the resources that I'm using for this class did they give a definition. Uh, Either they just skipped over giving a definition and just went along as if we all were on the same page already, which kind of goes back to that idea where we kind of just know what it is and we can't define it. And then the ones that did give definitions were not able to give like just like a clear, quick sentence. They had to break it down into these long parts. So I think it's very difficult to give a super accurate one sentence definition of wisdom. But I do think that the proper use of knowledge is the best we have. I think that's really good. Um, what, the way Charnock did is he kind of broke it down into three long paragraphs, and this is kind of my summary of each of those paragraphs. So when he sees in wisdom, he sees a handful of things. He sees uh, acting for a right end. So wisdom, knowledge is just knowing what the right end is. Wisdom is actually getting you there. 
So kind of that same thing, the proper use of knowledge. But any time you're able to efficiently move towards the right end, you are acting in wisdom. People who are unwise might know what the right end is, but they're very inefficient at getting there. So wisdom is acting for a right end. Um, wisdom is observing all circumstances for an action. What he meant by this is wisdom is able to know in what context certain actions belong and what their consequences will be. So as I was reading him, for me, I think one of the best examples that came up is, um, you know, you hear this all the time, like when tragedy strikes, uh, someone goes through a really hard time, like some terrible thing happens. Uh, Usually people will say there's lots of right things to say, but maybe right after tragedy has struck is not the best time to say it. That's someone trying to counsel you in wisdom. Like they're knowing, they know that this, this given action, speaking truth into somebody's life, there's ways to do it and there's times to do it. That's wisdom. Knowledge is knowing the truth to be spoken, but wisdom is knowing when I speak it in this way, in this circumstance, what's going to happen? How is it going to improve or hurt the situation? Uh, and then he says, acting according to right reason and judgment of things. So and the way he basically defined this is, anytime you act instinctively, you're not being wise. Wisdom is when your actions and your words are following, they come from sound reasoning. You think before you speak, you think before you act. Everything you do and say is according to right reason. So being unreasonable is obviously unwise, or doing things without reason is unwise. Even if sometimes you do things without reason and it ends up working out okay, we would still say that was unwise. You always want to have right reason and right judgment of what you're doing. That's just, so that's kind of how he broke it down. Again, it's not like a clear, succinct, here is wisdom. It's just kind of, uh, you know, well, here, it kind of looks like this. Um, but yeah, that's how we, sorry, I'm sorry, was someone take a picture? Did I turn it too fast? Um, so the first thing we want to establish is that God is wise. However, we understand wisdom. The Bible certainly attributes wisdom to God. With God, our wisdom and might, he has counsel and understanding. Uh, and I think here is probably decent. Understanding is probably more along the lines of knowledge, but counsel is more of wisdom. Counsel is kind of going back to this thing. God never acts without counsel, without reason, without proper judgment. He always acts according to wise counsel. He understands, and then he uses that understanding to make decisions. And that's why he has wisdom and then the might to accomplish all that. With God, our wisdom and might. Probably the most popular uh, paragraph in all of Scripture that speaks of God's wisdom is Paul's in Romans 12. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he has been repaid? From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So again, we have not only wisdom being explicitly given to God and saying that he has it in riches, but it says that his judgments, so again, that's wisdom, that's counsel, that's, are unsearchable. So his judgments are greater than ours. His wisdom is infinitely greater than ours. You cannot, you do not have the capacity to fully search out and explore all of the reasons why God does what he does. It's an unsearchable judgment, and that's basically what unscrutable means. You can't understand it. You can't break it down. His wisdom is infinitely beyond us. 
He is just that wise. And even here, again, this idea of counselor. God has no need of anyone to meet with him in in some kind of court of appeals and say, you know, God, let's think about this for a second. Why don't you maybe try this, right? God has never, ever relied upon the counsel of other people or other creatures. No one can be his counselor. I love, we actually sing this, the song, Behold Our God. And one of the lines we sing in that is, um, who has given counsel to the Lord? And it's a rhetorical question. God has never sought advice. I mean, he, he will do that in human circumstances, but he's always doing that for a purpose. He's trying to draw something out of us. So, you know, for example, God and Abraham have that famous little debate over Sodom and Gomorrah, and it, it appears as if God is sort of taking Abraham's advice. But you can see that God is trying to draw, he, he, he acts as if he's seeking counsel because he wants us to figure things out. He wants us to interact with him. So you may find these random times in the Old Testament where God is you know, Abraham, what do you think we should do? But he's not, obviously, he's not like literally thinking, I'm not sure what the right answer is here. I think Abraham would know, right? He's trying to teach Abraham a lesson. Because he is infinitely wise, he has no need for a counselor, for anyone to be able to search out his judgment. So God is wise. And what's interesting is the Bible doesn't just say God is wise. The Bible defines him as being the only one who's wise, God is alone wise. That is how we are to understand Romans 16, 27. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. How to translate this in the Greek can be kind of complicated, but almost all of the translators will admit to you that what, what this sentence is trying to get at is obviously not saying that there's a bunch of gods and only Yahweh is wise of them. It's actually saying nobody but God is wise. He alone is wise to the only wise God. There's no one else you can truly call wise except for God. If you're being technical and accurate, God alone is wise. Now we have to ask that question, how is that possible, right? Because we, we have some levels of wisdom. We meet and know people and say, oh, that's a wise man. That's a wise woman. Um, so what, what, do, what do we mean when we say God alone is wise? Well, what we mean by that is God is the only one who is a wise, wise originally, which means his wisdom is eternal and with him. Just like everything we've been saying, his wisdom is his essence. His wisdom is a part of who he is. It's part of his nature. So in other words, what we're essentially saying here is that God never like learned wisdom. He didn't accrue wisdom over time. He just is wisdom. He just is wise. We, on the other hand, are not, any wisdom we have is not original to us. We have to learn it. We have to incorporate it into our being, but God alone is wise originally. He never learned his wisdom. He's also wise perfectly, so his wisdom is infallible and always true. We can have levels of wisdom. We can think we're wise, but then be proven that we're not. We can have some wisdom mixed with some uh, silliness, but God is infallibly and always wise. He is wise perpetually, so again, he never becomes more or less wise. We, generally speaking, over time become more wise, but even in, uh, some people go the other way, right? Tragedy happens in their life and cause them to make unwise, and they, they become more unwise, right? So we grow in both directions. We can become wiser, we can become less wise, but God is infinitely, perfectly, originally wise perpetually. He never loses or grows in wisdom. And then lastly, he is infinitely wise. Because his 
wisdom is his essence, it, it is his nature, and his nature is eternal and infinite. His wisdom is therefore eternal and infinite. And so when we say God alone is wise, we're saying that God is originally, perfectly, perpetually, and infinitely wise, and this isn't true for any creature. So creatures will have sort of analogies of God's wisdom, but they are not truly wise. God alone is truly wise. And so we want to ask, this is kind of the fun stuff, like how is God's wisdom manifested? How do we know that God is so wise? I mean, the obvious, the first and obvious reason I don't have on here is scripture, right? We saw the verses, God reveals himself as wise. So scripture is the first means we have to know the wisdom of God. He reveals his wisdom to us. But there are other ways that we see and observe and and come to understand that God truly is unfathomably wise. And so I have three reasons that we're going to break down. Um, God's wisdom is manifested in his purpose and his decrees. We see that God is wise through his purposes and his decrees. God's wisdom is manifested in his works and the things that he does. And God's wisdom is manifested in salvation. And so we're going to look at these three things. His purpose and decree, the scriptures testify about the wisdom of God, not just who he is is wise, but that he shows his wisdom with his plans, with his, the way he plans things, his purposes and his decrees. Isaiah 25, 1, O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name. Why are we exalting God? Why are we praising God? For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. So this is a person Isaiah here is seeing God's plan work out in the world and thinking, oh my goodness, he is so wise. Like, look at what he's doing. Look at what he's accomplishing. He is seeing the wisdom of God in God's purposes and decrees. Your plans formed of old are wonderful. It's just amazing to see these things unfold. So we can see the wisdom of God in his plans and how he accomplishes things. Ephesians 2, 11 through 12, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So again, there's that word counsel. Everything works out according to God's wisdom. God is infinitely wise and he is guiding the world. He is bringing the world along according to his wisdom. So again, what does this testify? That when we look at anything, when we see what he's doing in the world and what he's doing with the church, what he's doing with us, we see the wisdom of his plans unfolding, the wisdom of his counsel, his predestination unfolding. Ephesians 3.10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So even angels and demons have been looking into the world and they've been seeing specifically through what God has done through the church and even the angels and demons are going, oh my goodness, this God's wisdom is manifold. We can't comprehend how wise he is now that we see how the pieces are lining up. We thought it was chaos, we thought it was broken and now it's actually all been going according to plan all along. God demonstrates his wisdom in his plans and in his decrees uh, and just, and one more, for, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. What is this getting at? Well, notice that God is ultimately accomplishing all things. Everything is from him. Everything is working out through him according to his power and to him. So everything that God is doing is ultimately, he's working it back to himself. He's working it back to his own glory. And so here's the logic of this verse. 
if God is the most glorious thing in and outside of all creation, and if his plans are ultimately bringing him glory, then we know that his plans are glorious. So the fact that God is working all things to his glory shows us just how glorious and wise his plans are. So again, all these verses just kind of give us a, a, a taste of how God's wisdom is demonstrated in his purpose and in his decrees. But we also know that God's wisdom is, is, is manifoldly expressed in his works. This is probably, I think, for most people, are, well, actually, the next one is probably, but this is a fun one to meditate on. And there's two, when we talk about God's works, we really break this down into two categories. And the first one is just creation itself. And by that, we mean the actual physical world, the beauty of it, the scale of it, the majesty of it, especially the harmony of it. Even just before I started doing this class, I don't know what made me think of it, but sometime this week I was, I was getting a drink of water and I was going back to my desk and I was trying to remember, I can't remember all the details, but I was trying to remember the water cycle and I was trying to remember it from school. And, and again, I, might, I can't quite remember all the details, but something about how water's in the ocean and then the heat evaporates it into the air and somehow in that process it loses its salt and then it gets frozen in the clouds and then the clouds move it above land and then it rains or snows, which goes into the rivers. The gravity pulls that into rivers or underground, and then the rivers bring it back into the ocean. And that's a very simplistic understanding. But all of God's creation, you could study anything. You could study it at a broad level, like you could study the tropical rainforests or the mountains. Or you could study things at a tiny little level. You could just study photosynthesis and plants. You take a tiny little bit of creation or a grand... And you could study it for years and just seeing how God has worked this amazing creativity. And he's created this universe that which I'm not saying God's power doesn't uphold it. It does. But isn't it amazing the way the universe is kind of just like programmed to run itself? Like we don't live in a world. I know this sounds cool to us because it would just be it's so different. But this really wouldn't be very creative. Imagine if God was doing everything in the sense of not like providentially upholding the system that he created, but literally, like, if he wanted a tree to move, he would actually have to reach his hand down and move it. Like, or if he, you know, imagine if God had to, like, mechanistically just, like, move everything. Like, that's not very creative. Like, he just created all this stuff and just kind of pushes it around. But he didn't do that. He created this amazing ecosystem in, like, even learning about gravity, the way gravity in the out, in outer space works so that it holds everything together and creates life for us and it's just this unbreakable thing. And then the last one that came to my mind and then I'll, I'll let you talk if you want about creation, but it's amazing to me how the, the, the natural world is so complex and is so creatively fit together in this perfect little system that if you tweak one little thing, it all starts to unravel. Uh, I was just learning about, I saw an ad for some kid, I don't even know if the, how, how accurate this is, you know, it's just an ad. For some kid apparently invented some amazing mosquito catcher. Like it, it works better than any other mosquito catcher that you can buy. And that, you know, ads are hyperbolic. They want you to buy it. So they're a little dramatic. And the advertisement says something like, if every person bought this, we could rid the world of mosquitoes. And so all of these dorky scientists went on and started commenting about what would happen if we rid the world of mosquitoes. And they were talking about all the things that eat mosquitoes would die. And then all the things that eat those things would die. And then those things that eat those things would die. And then how all of those things that are dead 
contribute to our ecosystem in all these other ways. And basically what they showed is that if all the mosquitoes go out, basically the whole ecosystem dies. Like you just, you remove one little thing or you add one little thing. And, and you can totally change it. It's, it's just incredible because God is just so wise. He didn't just put a clump of clay down and move it around. He created this infinitely majestic, wise, uh, you know, universe. And so I'm, I'm done ra- rambling, but that's one of the first ways we see God's wisdom is in creation. Do you have any neat stories or anything about God's creation? Yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I th- I think of, and I'm not trying to throw under the bus here because gardening is very hard and it takes a lot of time. So I'm not trying to make fun of her. But my wife really really struggles with. She loves planting. She loves to pot things. She loves to plant things. But it's difficult. It's hard to keep it alive. And so sometimes I'll think. Like my wife, who's, who, who loves this stuff, has to put so much time and energy to make this little plant just grow and live. Yet I go out into the world, and it's happening by itself all over the place. Like I, I, I go up to Rio Doso, and I just think, why are all these trees here? Like how do they have enough water? Where are they getting the water from? Who's taking care of these trees? They just grow by themselves. And yet I, I bring a little plant home, and I kill it in a week. <laughs> but it's just amazing the way God is just, he, he just... His wisdom is seen in, it, in creation. The dinosaurs became extinct. But God must have had a purpose in putting them here, and they served that purpose, and now they're gone. Yeah, that's right. And we know some of, the, some of the theories behind the purposes, that's where we get our oil from. Now, I don't know if that's true, because that presupposes a lot of other things. But allegedly, they've given us, every time you get in your car or in an airplane, think the dinosaurs. <laughs> but, but, you know, you're exactly. He, he obviously had them here for a purpose didn't anymore, and one day I think we'll see the wisdom in it, if not already, if we don't already, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's right. That's right. And he did the flood next. Yeah, yes. <clears throat> yep. So yeah, I mean it just if you really want to see God's wisdom, uh, just just study creation. Uh, we get this from the Psalms too. Oh Lord, how manifold are your works in wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here the psalmist is looking at the earth, looking at the creatures of the earth and just thinking, God is so wise. This is so creative and majestic and beautiful. And, uh, and the, we, we kind of talked about this a little bit when we talked about um, God's existence. But these are two separate things. When we study creation, it, it does show evidence of God's hand and it shows how powerful he is. It shows that this was created. Um, but here, we're, we're not so much talking about just seeing creation. We're not just talking about seeing a mind behind this, but that specifically that there's wisdom in how things work. There's creativity and wisdom. I mean, the world is just chock full of so many things that work so well together, and it's so creative and so diverse, yet so unified in the different... It's, it's more than just someone obviously created this. It's a second element. Someone obviously infinitely wise and creative created this. 
And it's, he's just, she's just marveling. Look at these creatures God has made. It's just amazing. He's just so wise. You know, one of the things that <clears throat> I think about is Darwin and the way he hypothesized the creation of the world and what we knew about <clears throat> when particularly humans and blood in 1870, whatever. Mm -hmm. It was just a red liquid we had. Right. We didn't, you know, I guess we knew dogs were different. And, but we now know it takes 40 different steps at the molecular level in the blood, in the cell level, for blood to coagulate. 40 separate steps that have to be in order Yeah. for your blood to coagulate. So... It's, well, we see this all over. It's the same argument with the eye. It is impossible that it would have evolved. That's right, yeah. 40 separate steps that have to be in order or they wouldn't have worked. Yeah, that's so right. even if blood had miraculously... Or, yeah, you can't use the word miraculously. Yeah. <laughs> blood, yeah. And we'd have led to death. Yeah, that's right, yeah. For a jillion years, I mean, you do the math and it's past a jillion, I think. Yeah, that's right. Once you multiply out the statistics. It's just... It, it, it's amazing in that... And that people don't... People who understand mathematics and probabilities won't look at that and yeah. say, well, yes, we see. It's absolutely impossible yeah. for my yeah. eye to evolve in however many trillion years it takes. Yep. Or my blood. <clears throat> or for all of that to happen at the same time. But... What, what option do I have? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I've got my own sins I want to keep doing. Yeah, yeah and, and that shows the wisdom of God, not just in that, but in God pre-programming that in us. Yeah. In, in other words, God prepared our bodies for a world of sin before we were actually there. Because theoretically, we sh if, you know, I, I know this is hard because of God's decree and predestination, and so don't overthink this, but theoretically, had Adam never eat, eaten of the fruit, and he, he did what he was called to do, he walked in obedience and achieved glory, uh, at least the way I read Scripture, some people might disagree with me on this, but I don't think we would have need for blood clots, because I don't think you would have ever bled. Yeah. Um, so God put us in a perfect world, but he created, and, and you think of all these other animals too, and all, all the, you know, God gave predators sharp teeth before they were using them to eat animals. <laughs> now, uh, some, you can still have sharp teeth and be vegetarian. Pandas have very sharp teeth and are vegetarians. So they still were able to have eaten. But before there was death and stuff, God, in his wisdom, he programmed a world that was not sinful, but capable of dealing with sin, right? So you just, again, see his wisdom even in that. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember years ago, uh, I didn't hear my wife, Jerry Lewis used to have this fundraiser. He's on TV for 30 or 40 years. He's going to fix MS. And what he said was, I'm going to fix God's mistake. Yeah, yeah. Jerry Lewis. My wife banned that program. Yeah, yeah, good for her, yeah. Yeah. 24 hours. But you can imagine the ego yeah, that's right. But that is basically, it all comes down to that. Yeah, sin. that's right, yeah. Sin is basically what, like Adam and Eve, saying, oh, yeah, 
we're going to take the alternative. Oh, yeah. Because I'm smart enough. That's right. Yeah, that's a, a lot of theologians have said that the one thing present in every sin is pride. There's, there's always some level of pride in, in all of our sin. Yeah. But when we talk about God's works, we don't just mean creation. We mean also his providence. So not just what he made, but the way he governs what he made. So things like seasons, like don't you see the creativity and how everything is so perfectly secular? It all stays on this perfect rotation. That's just, that's wisdom there. Um, the way God takes care of all of his living creatures. I went for a run this morning and it was beautiful outside, and I didn't listen to music. I was listening to the trees, and I heard birds chirping, and I thought of that verse, God telling us how God feeds the birds. Like, the birds have no, they're always going to find food, because God is so creatively upholding all things. But addition to his providence is also how he works all things for our good. Doesn't that show the wisdom of God, that no matter what happens in your life, the Bible says that this is working positively for you? God is able to take all of these free will choices that are happening and all of these what seem to us random circumstances and yet they're all actually intentionally designed to sanctify us. That's incredible wisdom. The preservation of the church. God has promised the church will never go away. So he's, he's wise enough to govern the world so that the church can't become extinct. Uh, we see this in the fulfillment of Scripture. Isn't it, doesn't God show his wisdom when he makes these incredible prophecies and then thousands of years later just finds a way to, f to make it work, finds a way from our perspective, right? It's, it's just amazing. His law is uh, his creativity. Like, it's, it's his, his wisdom. Uh, you know, I, I'm not actually suggesting this. I mean this rhetorically. I, I should lose my job as a pastor if I was actually suggesting this. But just as a joke, I want you to this week... Just sin as much as you can. Just, just do whatever you can to not follow God's law and see how well your life ends up, right? I mean, sin will have temporary pleasure. Sin has temporary feeling like this is the best thing in the world. But you ask any person who's wrecked their lives that sin culminates and destroys us. God's law is wise. It's just amazing that if you just obey God's law, Maybe not right in the moment. It doesn't necessarily always feel like this is the best thing. But your life was almost always going to improve if you just do what God says. It's almost always good for us. Right? So God's providence shows his wisdom. In him we live and move and have our being. That's just the wisdom of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. These are just verses that support some of the individual things in there. So God shows his wisdom in what he's made and how he governs what he has made. He shows it in creation and in providence. I like the way John Gill, specifically talking about this, this amazing, God's amazing ability to take even the worst circumstances in your life and use them for good. John Gill says this, He maketh all things work together for the good of his people, for the trial of their grace, and to make them meet for glory. Nor is there any one trial or exercise they meet with, but what there is a necessity of it, and the wisdom of God in every part will appear striking and amazing, as when a man looks on the wrong side of a tapestry, or only views it in detached pieces, he is scarcely able to make anything of it, nor can he discern art and beauty in it. But when it is all put together and viewed on its right side, the wisdom and contrivance and art of the maker are observed with admiration. All he's saying there is when you go through a trial, that's like just looking at one little piece of a tapestry. 
and it doesn't look beautiful. This doesn't feel right. This doesn't look right. There's no purpose here. There's, there's, this is awful. This is terrible. But over time, our lives go and we start to see God's providence in those things. And we start to see the picture and we realize, I know why he did that. And, and even then, we don't really ever fully grasp. I'm hoping in the next life, we'll have a much better picture. I think we will. But I'm not sure we'll ever fully grasp. But the idea is that God, all of our trials are make, preparing us for glory. And the more and more we see that, the more and more we see God's wisdom, even, even in the worst parts of our lives. We only don't see God's wisdom when, we're, when we look things really, really small. And, and like, that's the way he uses this analogy. If you look at the wrong side of a tapestry or if you just look at one part, it doesn't look beautiful. But when you're able to get that full perspective and you see all the parts come together, you praise the one who made it. And that's what he's saying our whole lives are. You look at one little portions of your lives and it just doesn't look meaningful or purposeful. It looks like a disaster. But when you can zoom out and see what God is doing, oh, God is so wise in how he's governing my life. And the third and probably the most important way that God reveals his wisdom or manifests his wisdom is in specifically the plan of salvation. Uh, the incarnation, now we don't really have time to discuss this today, um, but if we could do a whole series just on the incarnation, and the more and more you learn about the way God managed to bring human nature and divine nature together, it's, it's, it's the, I would go, I'd be willing to say it's the wisest thing that's ever happened. I mean, we just, we cannot fathom uh, my wife has um, Muslim side of the family. And so ever since I've known her, I, I've started to dive more into some Islamic apologetics. And one thing that's amazing to me is uh, one of the most common arguments that Muslims have against Christians. Uh, and I would say this is even more so than the Trinity in my experience. Above even the Trinity is the incarnation. They, they would say that this is an oxymoron. It's a walking contradiction. God is by definition not man. For God to be a man, in their view, is a circle to be square. God cannot be a man. Now, most of that is because they don't, they're not grasping what the incarnation is. But they're at least understanding. They're looking at this and saying, you, you want me to look at something and say it's both God and man. And they're saying, there's no way. And we're saying, the wisdom of God has found a way. Like, the wisdom of God confounds our reason. The, like I said, if we were to just dive into the, the, the nitty-gritty details and look at 2,000 years of church history and how we've sought to understand the incarnation, the more and more you understand the mystery of the incarnation, the more and more you see God is so wise to bring spirit and matter together, to bring divine and human together. It's... it's it's just amazing. If you, if you want to see that God is infinitely wise, just study the incarnation for the rest of your life. He is, it is just an incredible thing that he has done in making God born of a woman. That's, that's just amazing. Um, the gospel shows God's wisdom in so many ways. Uh, I love in Romans chapter, thir or Romans chapter 3, Paul, he explains the plan of salvation and then he says, God did this so that he might be the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. What he's saying is that in human course of affairs, when someone has sinned, we don't have the wisdom to offer them both mercy and justice. We have to pick. When a police officer pulls you over for speeding, you're going to get one of two things, mercy or justice. 
You can't get both. You're either going to get a ticket in which you receive justice, or you're not going to get a ticket in which justice was not served and you got mercy. What happened in the gospel is mercy and justice kissed. When God saved you, he did nothing unjust. Because we, what we read in church on Sunday, your debt has been nailed to the cross. It's been paid for. Justice is served, and yet you still are not receiving justice. Justice has been served, yet you're not getting justice. You're getting mercy. That, that seems like a contradiction, but God has found a way to make the contradictory not contradictory. God can't be man, but the wisdom of God found a way. Those who receive mercy can't receive justice, but God has found a way, right? And obviously, okay, there are some situations in which we maybe get both. Someone else maybe pays a ticket for you. So I'm not trying to be too dogmatic here, but you get the point. You just, the way the gospel portrays the mercy and justice of God, same thing with hate and love. Uh, There's this old cliche you may have heard in the Christian life where people will say something like this. If you want to know how much God loves you, look at the cross. If you want to know how much God hates sin, look at the cross. The cross displays both hatred and love to the full degree. It doesn't just display one thing or the other. In the cross, we see God's love for sinners. In the cross, we see how seriously God takes sin, right? We see hatred and love manifested in a perfect way. Uh, Isn't it amazing? The the book of Hebrews chapter 2 says that by death, Jesus conquered death. Isn't that incredibly creative? Our gospel is that death was defeated through itself. Death died. Uh, John Owen, one of the most famous works in all of the Reformation era, was a book on the atonement that John Owen wrote, and he titled it, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Kind of a mouthful. The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. When Christ died, death died. (laughs) It's just amazing how Christ conquered death through death. And we see foreshadows of that in the Old Testament. One of my favorite one is from the book of Esther. I forget the characters' names. But the bad guy in the story builds a hanging tower to hang the good guys. And then when his evil plan is ousted, he ends up getting hung on the tower that he built. So it's kind of like that poetic justice. And that's what happens to death. When death killed Jesus, it hung itself on its own noose. Death killed itself when it killed Jesus. And we can only talk about that way because of how God designed the gospel that he would conquer death through death. And related to that, that he would achieve victory through defeat. Like when Jesus was hanging on the cross, from everyone else's perspective, that was a moment of defeat. Satan won. He got the Messiah killed. The Messiah is dead. I just saw a movie this week, uh, and it's based off uh, Viking lore. And there's this one little line in the movie where these Vikings say something about this weird Christian. It was based right around the time when Christianity first broke into the north, up in the Netherlands and stuff. And so they, they, they were so confused by this Christian religion because the Vikings were macho men. They were brute savages. And so their version of power was destroying your enemies. And one of the guys in the movie expresses bewilderment that those Christian swine believed their God was nailed to a tree. That's not victory. That's defeat. I don't want to worship a God who was killed by the Romans, right? But we know that that was victory. Colossians chapter 2 says that when Christ died, he conquered sin and death, and he triumphed over his enemies. Obviously, it's connected to the resurrection. 
But still, isn't it amazing that the way Jesus won the greatest battle ever was through defeat? It was by dying, by being conquered, that he conquered. And we have this, again, exaltation through humility. Christ didn't come down with a bunch of angels and just slaughter everybody like the Vikings wanted him to. He came and served. He served people. He loved people. And he told his disciples, who's the greatest among you? He who serves. Christianity is a religion where you are exalted by not exalting yourself. So you see all of these things that should be contradictory. God has brought them and wedded them together. So so much in the gospel and the incarnation, we just see God's wisdom and how he has remade the world through this incredible, surprising, impossible to predict gospel. In other words, I mean it. I say it in church a lot, but I mean it. Even if we'd stop talking about what's true, like just, just stop talking about what's true and just read every religion's overall story, I think Christianity is the best story. It's the best story. It's, if it, even if it weren't true, it's the one I, want, I would want to be true. That's the wisdom of God. He didn't just come down here, squish everybody, say, worship me. He, he accomplished victory in such a way that you want it to be true. <laughs> it's so wise. But I'm sorry, I, it's hard you start talking about the gospel. I can't not rant. Do you have any thoughts before I continue? Jesse? I do about, like, you know, question Jesus and how Jesus says that wine is so, I think, terrifying, to be honest with you. My kingdom is the world. You are already put to the sword. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, the, we, we can't see it, but you have to imagine that dramatic and theatric spiritual tension between heaven and hell, so to speak, the forces of death and the forces of God. You know, and I know angels aren't like humans, but that sense of death thinking, thinking, no, saying, we're going to, we're going to get them. We're going to get them. This is it. We're going to kill human flesh. We have conquered them. And not realizing that it was actually his own death, the death of death in that moment. That's right. It's, I know, it's amazing. That's right. Yes, exa- yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, the, the gospel shows the wisdom of Christ. We see this all throughout the scripture. Um, I love here, 1 Corinthians 2. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So the wisdom of God in salvation is one that can only be seen through spiritual eyes. Without the Spirit, you don't see how wise it is, but the Spirit can open up your eyes, and once you fully see the gospel, it just, this is the wisest thing that's ever happened. Uh, For time's sake, um, I'll just read it really fast. I love, this is one of the greatest tributes to the wisdom of God in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards and not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you but you are in Christ Jesus and because and who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that it is written let no one who boasts boast in the Lord we obviously don't have time to talk about everything here but just one aspect of it that i love the way paul ties it into this you can't boast in other words god god's plan of salvation was so wise because he wanted it to fool everyone he wanted it to surprise everyone he wanted to do it in such a way that we just see his wisdom is beyond us that's why he didn't do it in the old-fashioned way, we would all expect that. And the old-fashioned way for Paul here is uh, what, the, what people were expecting is if, if Christianity is true and if it's glorious, then of course the smartest people are going to be the ones that believe it. And the most powerful people are going to be the ones that promote it. But notice when we go through church history, we have Constantine. Constantine is basically the only example of someone incredibly wise and incredibly powerful becoming a Christian and then using his Christianity to try to better the world. The vast majority of Christian history is that it's not the powerful and the wise and the triumphant who become Christians. It's the, the ones that the world's looked at and said, they're nothing. We don't care about them. And God exalted the lowly. He exalted the peasant. He exalted the farmer. He exalted the tradesmen above the philosophers, above the kings, and above the princes. God basically said, what you find, you, what you despise, I'm going to glorify. And when he did that, it proved no one could come up with this plan but God. So we're not, gonna, we're not going to credit Christianity to Constantine. Constantine didn't do this. I didn't do this. I'm not smart enough. I'm not powerful enough. The only explanation for the growth of Christianity is the wisdom and power of God. Because there's no way that we could have done this. We didn't have enough power or wisdom or we couldn't have done it. But God has shamed what the world thinks is wise and demonstrated I'm wiser than the world. And he did this in the gospel. There's, there's nothing, not even creation, there's nothing that better reveals God's wisdom like the incarnation and the gospel. So before I get to applications, any just final thoughts on how God proves his wisdom on the gospel? If we, I think God, in some ways, as we'll spend eternity, you know, marveling, I think thoughts are used for the, for the, for the, for the day, for eternity, we're cursing God, but also yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. That that's a great point. I I agree. I think that's going to be one of the miseries of hell, is just dwelling upon how the wisdom was right in front of my face and I suppressed it the whole time. Yep. <laughs> yeah, uh huh. That's right, yeah. That's right. Yep, that's right. Exactly. 
exactly. That's a great point. That's a great point. I'm actually, I think, going to touch on that, actually. You kind of foresaw something here. So here's some of the applications. I, I have three main categories we're going to break down. Uh, God's wisdom is a ground for comfort. God's wisdom calls us to seek wisdom. And God's wisdom calls us to obey him. Let's just briefly talk about comfort. Uh, God, in other words, you can take a sigh of relief. God is so wise, we can trust he knows what he's doing. Right? When, you're, when your life feels like it's falling apart, when the world feels like it's falling apart, you can take a step back and remember who's in control and does he know what he's doing. Does he, does he know what he's doing better than I would know what he's doing if I were to switch roles with him? Right? Doesn't, isn't it just feel so good to know that an infinitely wise God is the one who's running the show? Wisdom is very, very important in leadership. And he is infinitely wise and in total control. So that should give us a lot of comfort to our lives. God's wisdom is a source of great comfort for us. That means we can trust him in trials. That means we can trust him when our prayers are unanswered. There's nothing that gives you better assurance when you have unanswered prayers in the wisdom of God. When you pray and ask God, please do this, please do this, please do this, and he says no, you know that that answer, that no, is coming from someone infinitely wise. That means I, would, I do not want the yes. <laughs> if the infinitely wise person said no, then I might not understand it, but I, I know now I don't want yes right? Because he is wise. His wisdom, we can just trust him and take comfort. Another thing is don't fret the future. This is a big thing that when we were preaching through 1 Samuel, I was really trying to instill in, 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 in us because I think America, just generally speaking, has a very pessimistic view towards the future. This idea that the world's just going to hell in a handbasket, Christ is coming soon, everything is so bad. Um, and sometimes I just want to say like, okay, if the Bible teaches that, then I'll repent. But to me, that just kind of seems like a, an affront to the wisdom of God. Like, I don't know, I just, I think he's running the show better than that. I think, I think we have more to trust with the future than, than just, it's, God has just let go of the reins. We're sliding downhill at a million miles an hour. We're going to crash and burn. Just get your ticket into heaven before it happens, right? No, I think God is going to, I think at the end of time, we're going to see, oh, the wisdom of God. Now I know why everything was falling apart. I, I see it now. So just take comfort, take a sigh of relief. The all-wise God is in control. This also tells us that we should seek wisdom. If God is wise and he is the standard of all things, we want to be like God, we should want to be wise. So part of wisdom is studying our Bibles, right? Wisdom and knowledge are different, but there's definitely a connection between them that you, it's going to be difficult to achieve wisdom without knowledge. So you should study, study the Bible, read books. You should always be pushing your mind to learn more, to grow more, because wisdom and knowledge are good things in and of themselves. I love the example I give is in 2 Timothy. When Paul's in prison and he's about to die, he says, Timothy, I want you to come see me before I die, and when you come, bring my books and my parchments. Paul's literally at the end of his life. He's in prison, and he wants to keep studying. He wants to keep reading. He wants to keep writing. So that God is all wise should make us want to seek knowledge and wisdom. Let's be like God and let's never stop learning. Uh, this is kind of what, a little bit of what Bill was saying, uh, but this is why the Bible has such a high view of respecting and listening to our elders. This has kind of just become like an old, in our culture, this is just like, um, what do you call it? Just like a cultural expression that people don't really practice or believe anymore. But this is very important in Scripture. Very, very important. Older women teach the younger women. There's, there's nothing in Scripture about the younger women teaching the older ones. 
Sometimes younger women are smarter than older ones. Sometimes. But the pattern is still older teach the younger. And all throughout Scripture, honor your parents, obey your authorities, respect your elders, show honor to your elders. And I think the reason for this is because like Bill was saying, in my experience, knowledge is something you get in books. Wisdom is something you get through experience. I think wisdom for us, not for God obviously, but for us, I think wisdom is very trial and error. That, that's why, my, here's, here's how I best learned this, is through marriage. Before I got married, I read a ton of marriage books. I read a lot of marriage books. And I've just, my whole life, studied theology. I've studied theology at a deep level my whole life. And I thought, like, okay, if anyone's ready for marriage, it's me. I've got a head full of theology. I've read all these marriage books. But marriage still just hit me like a freight train. It's just like there are just some things that you can't just learn the information and be ready for. You just have to do it. And so the older someone is, you know, when I look at old people, I think these are people who have a accrued a lot of wisdom, trial and error. They've gone through a lot of things that I haven't gone through. And so this is part of why. And this is why a 21-year-old who was valedictorian and, and, you know, graduated college early and got a PhD from Harvard could sit into a room with a 75-year-old retired electrician and still believe I have something to learn from this man. Like maybe I've accrued more book knowledge but I'm 21, he's 70, I have something to learn here. Because knowledge is more than just books. It's more than just education. It's, or forgive me, wisdom is more than just books and education. So I think one of the ways that, knowing that God is more than just knowledgeable, he's wise, we should respect our elders who are wiser than us, even if maybe if we were to take like a test, we might have more knowledge than them. They're wiser than us. Uh, and again, this means that we should live wisely. We should seek wisdom, we should respect, but we should live wisely. And what I mean by this is, this is, it's very common, especially in young, immature Christians, to want to see their Christian life in two categories, sinful or not sinful. I want to do this. Is it sinful? Pastor, is it sinful? No, it's technically not sinful. Okay, I'm going to do it. It's not sinful. You told me it's not sinful. I can do it. I'm going to do it. The Christian life is more than just can, doing everything I can that's not sinning. So a huge portion of the Christian life is, is, yes, we should ask that question, is this sinful? But then we should ask the next question, is it wise? And we as Christians should not want to do things that are unwise, even if they're legal. Like, even if we're allowed to do it, if it isn't wise, we should stay away from it. So much of Christian maturity is pressing on past right and wrong and into wise versus unwise. And I think Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. You know, Paul here is saying that just because something is lawful doesn't mean it's helpful. And helpfulness is learned through wisdom. Knowledge is knowing right or wrong. Wisdom is knowing helpful versus unhelpful, right? So God is wise, which means we should want to live wisely. And that doesn't just mean righteously. That means walking not just in righteousness, but in wisdom. Doing things that are helpful and productive versus unhelpful that still might not be sinful. Right? So take comfort, seek wisdom, and then the last application, walk in obedience. This is now where we do want to 
obey God's law. And this isn't the only reason we should obey God's law, but just since we're talking about wisdom, I want to focus on this. Because God's law is good and wise. We already hinted at this, but God's law is, God, God's law is not arbitrary. Like I said, his, his law has a reflection in the world. If you continue to break his law for long periods of time, it's going to crush you. It's going to destroy you. Ask any alcoholic. Ask any person who's been addicted to drugs. Ask any husband or wife that spent their whole past life, you know, in the horrible party scene. How the, 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 the consequences, the ramifications, these things wreck our lives. And even when we repent, there's usually still consequences that won't go away until the resurrection. Not obeying God's law is very, very dangerous. Not just spiritually, but practically in our lives. It is wise to be obedient. God's law is not just good, it's wise. And this, as a kind of a separate practice related to this, this is why, I don't know if you remember, we talked about the regulative principle of worship. Now again, not everyone defines this term the same way, but this is the principle the wisdom of God is behind this. When we come into church, we don't want to just ask the question, what are we allowed to do on Sunday morning? We want to ask the question, what's the, what's the best way to worship God? What's the most helpful way to worship God? And what the regulative principle of worship says is the best way to worship God is just to let him tell you. Like Let, let God tell you what to do on Sunday mornings. And that's what it, the regulative principle of worship means. That means that what we do on Sunday mornings is ultimately dictated by God's word. We don't want to just come here and try to outsmart God. Well, I know the Bible doesn't tell us to do this, but I really think it would work. I really think that people would like this. Are you wiser than God? That's kind of the rhetorical question the regular principle asks. Are we wiser than God? One of the ways that we honor God's laws by saying, God, why don't you just tell us how you want to be worshiped? We're not going to just make it up. Why don't you tell us? Because you're, we're not wise, so we just want to listen to you. Oh, I forgot. I've, there was a fourth one I forgot to add, and that's simply to praise God. Meditate on his wisdom. Uh, see, start thinking about his wisdom when you're out in nature. Uh, contemplate his providence. Again, never stop learning and diving into the gospel. The, more, the better you understand the gospel, the better you understand the wisdom of God. And then I'll just conclude so we can have a little bit of time for questions. Um, two concluding thoughts. One is a quote from Charnock. Um, one other thing. To kind of summarize, God is essentially wise, which means his wisdom is his nature in essence. Wisdom is not outside of God and he's seeking it. It's who God is. Um, that's, it's part of his essential being. God is essentially wise. Um, he doesn't learn. And he's efficiently wise. And what that means is that he is the sorcerer and giver of all wisdom. If you have any wisdom at all, God gave it to you. If you've accrued any wisdom at all, God gave it to you. So not only is God essentially wise... But he also dispenses that wisdom. He is wisdom and he gives wisdom. You are not wisdom and you have to receive wisdom. And then I just want to close. I love this quote from Charnock. We'll end with this. Wisdom is the royalty of God and the proper dialect of all his ways and works. No creature can lay claim to it. He is so wise that he is wisdom itself. I love that. Last phrase is powerful, but I love this that wisdom is the proper dialect of all of God's works. When you speak, you have different accents, different dialects. The metaphor here is whenever God does something, what's he speaking in? What's, what's the accent? Wisdom. Wisdom is the dialect of all his ways and works. It covers everything he does. 
So much so that he, as the Bible says, he alone is wise. No one else is truly wise. God alone is wise. And he is, in fact, so wise. He is essentially wise, which means he is wisdom itself. Wisdom is not something God has. Wisdom is something God is. He is wisdom itself. 